Mantis. Hey, everyone, tell your friends, tell your families about Dawn of Mantis, because guess what? We're on the way up, fellas, and we just want everyone to, to be on board with us and know, like, I was with these guys way back when they only got 1,000 plays a month or yeah. whatever, so I just wanted to say that, like, we're doing good things here, people are taking notice, and we're glad everyone's here listening, and I'm glad you guys are with me co-hosting this bad boy <laughs> as are we ivan joe and sam how's everyone doing tonight doing good doing wonderful so joe anything tonight pre-case any shenanigans or anything like rants raves general grievances i really have nothing i really have nothing sam you got anything no we went to a really good comedy show oh Saturday yeah we night. should talk about that we yes. should talk about that joe it was your chair Maybe you should talk about it. And <laughs> we, we all experienced it. We got to see uh, Kevin Farley. That was amazing. Uh, at the Grove yeah. the other night, the Grove Comedy Club, and it was awesome. Uh, did we ever figure out the name of the opener? I checked, and I'm I haven't got a message back. For Christ's sake, nothing on social media or anything anywhere related to that show. Uh, is telling us the name of the opener, but it's Chris something, and he's a local guy. He's a very very funny guy, and we're going to try to find out his real identity and get him on the show. Having said that, the poor guy did not get to finish his set, did he, boys? No. He was doing a fantastic job he before was. what happened, yeah. which we're about to say. So, yeah, he was he was the opener for Kevin Farley, this Chris, I don't know what, and he was doing great, and then all of a sudden there's a giant thud behind us. Directly. Dire yeah, uh, hit my chair, and uh, there was a gentleman that passed out back there. He just flattened out, and his legs were all up under him backwards, all weird. And uh, I yelled, I think I yelled, call an ambulance or something. You did. Yeah. You, that's very good of you. There's got to be that guy or that person. I was that guy. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> call 911. Yeah. And then someone else said, is there a nurse in the house? And then there were two or three that ran over and it was a bunch. I mean, you know, they fanned the guy with menus and it probably took a good five minutes, didn't oh, it? Oh, at to, least. It felt yeah. like 50. It did. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember looking up at the at the comedian, and the poor guy was just like dejected, and kind of put his microphone back in the stand because you know, I mean, it's a it's a pretty cool deal to be opener for Kevin Farley at the yeah, Grove. oh yeah, yeah. And then here this thing happens and screws him out of his last three or four minutes. Yeah. So I felt really bad for the I opener. I feel too. bad for the guy that passed out too. You know, I just I, I you know, the obvious joke is the guy could be like, "How'd you do?" He'd be like, "I killed." I, <laughs> you know, <laughs> literally, I killed one guy. Actually, he walked away. He was fine. Uh, different reports. One report was that, you know, he took some edibles and he couldn't handle them. Another one was like, he worked out in the heat all day and, and drank, only drank energy drinks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not good. And he so, was dehydrated. Yeah, yeah. Dehydrated. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, whatever. He's okay now. He's okay. Yeah. He didn't even get arrested. They said the cops came and he didn't even get arrested. No, why would he get arrested? Yeah. But anyway, yeah, it was all, it was all good. All, all's well that ends well. Yeah. I was proud of myself because they were like, they were on the phone to 911 and they were like, age, age. And they were looking around. I was like, between 40 and 50. 
And the wife was like, 46. I was like, nailed you it. <laughs> nailed it. Nailed it. Yep. I got it. If you want to know someone's age, come on to me. <laughs> I can guess your weight and your age. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It was totally bizarre. But the shows were amazing. Yes, they were. Kevin Farley came back out and just didn't miss a lick, made some jokes about it, which were mm-hmm. hilarious, and then went on to kill himself. Yes. Well, he didn't kill himself. I but- know, but to kill, you know, in the words of the <laughs> comedian <know>. lingo, <laughs> he killed. He was a killer. But he didn't kill anyone. He just... Made us leave with their heads hurting because we laughed so hard. Yeah, I told him that. I was like, shook his hand, and I was like, thank you, sir. I told him the same thing. That's funny. Borderline migraine now because of you. And yeah, then we got to talk to him for a minute and hung out and took pictures and then left. It was great. It was great. It was a great night. Great night, fellas. I'm glad you guys made it. It was amazing. Podcast bonding. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Pod bonding. (laughs) All right. So what do you have for us tonight, Joe? Boy, oh boy, am I excited about this one, fellas. This is one you've been we've been wanting to hit for a while. This episode comes to you care of Steve Coppinger. Oh, amazing. Yeah, right. He was the gentleman we had a few episodes ago uh, about Sidney Pavat, the first Arkansas State Trooper murdered on the job, right? He just sent me, it was just a two or three days after that, uh, I got an email from Mr. Coppinger, and he said, hey, I sent you a little bit of research and stuff. I've just been poking around about this Phantom Marine case. A little, you know, I said, I figured I'd, whatever I have, I'd give to you, and you can do something with it. And a little bit of poking around was like over 200 pages of just pure gold. Yeah. that's. Uh, I'm talking old medical reports, correspondence back and forth, and then even stuff from the FBI and the local police departments, old newspaper articles, death certificates, everything you could possibly imagine. Wow. He totally set us up on this one. He just handed it to me on a silver platter. All I had to do was arrange it and write it out, man. That's amazing. Thanks, sir. That's awesome. Yes. So, yes. Thank you, Steve Coppinger. Uh, this is all because of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really, it's would, amazing. Would have taken me a, I don't know how long to gather. I'm, maybe I never would have gathered some of that stuff. Some of it's like pretty obscure. It's pretty awesome. All right, so shall we? We shall. It was a frigid Saturday in January of 1946 in the small town of Newport, Arkansas. Several of the townsfolk were warming up and sipping coffee in a small cafe when the door opened, chiming the little silver bell, and letting in a sudden blast of cold air. The patrons were all greeted with a pitiful sight. A man, looking about 30 years old, but a hard-lived 30, hobbled into the cafe on a set of crutches. His hands were drawn up and awkward, and he was wearing a brown sweater over a khaki shirt, along with some striped pants and army-issued shoes. This starting off like Casparade of Walnut. <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. He came from nowhere. Yeah, you paint a picture. In my mind, friend. I picture it as black and white, like at the beginning of an old Twilight episode. Oh, yeah. Twilight, uh, Twilight Zone. Zone episode. Sorry. Yeah. You got you to gotta be careful. I know, right? Twilight. Was they all shimmery? <laughs> he <and> was a, <laughs> the sun was hitting him, so he was sparkling. I can Jesus. only play baseball in the rain. <laughs> when it thunders, what a fucking <laughs> stupid <laughs> bullshit ride. It's so stupid. Okay, we got to. But yes, like an old Twilight Zone episode. There you go. There you go. (laughs) He limped over to the cafe's owner, a guy named Hayden Britton, who had been sitting behind the cash register reading a paper. The haggard-looking fellow then extended his hand and said, Hello, Britt. Shake hands with a dead man. Mm. Yeah. Hayden dropped the paper, stood to his feet, and as white as a ghost, he said, You're Bill Langston. The stranger smiled and nodded. Well, the problem with this is that Bill Langston or William Willard Langston as, I mean, he's, this guy's got more names than Davy Crockett. Bill, Bill. Yeah. 
William Willard Langston. A lot of people called him Willard. Some people called him Willie. Some people called him Bill. A little confusing. Just don't call him late for dinner. Ooh, I was thinking that. Nice. Well, the problem is (laughs) Willie, Bill, William Willard had died 10 months earlier fighting in Iwo Jima in the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. Oh. Or did he? Or had he? Yeah. Thank you. That's what everyone had been told. But now here he was. You know, here's this man claiming to be the slain soldier sitting on a stool and sipping a coffee. Oh, wow. As he told the harrowing story of being a POW and how he made his way back home, a few customers slipped out of the cafe to call friends and family and alert them of the bizarre situation. Before long, people were coming from the barbershop, the town grocery, and from their homes to gather around the mysterious man and listen to his story. As they entered, he greeted all of them by name, some of them even by long-forgotten nicknames. Right? Knew everybody. Hey, Jim, it's Jim. Hey, it's Bandit. Hey, Scooter McGillicuddy. <laughs> exactly. Hey, that's my nickname from back in elementary school. He knew all these. He knew everybody. Some recognized him as William when they saw him, but most were unconvinced at first until they spoke to him. It's worth noting here that Langston had not lived in Newport for several years because he'd moved to Michigan right after high school back in 1935, okay? And this is in the mid-40s, so about 10 years. Uh, So most of the townsfolk hadn't seen him in that long, about 10 years. But he spoke of old times, football games, parties, and other events from the town's past that only a local would know. He even spoke of specific fishing trips Langston had taken with certain townsfolk and accurately recalled funny stories from those trips. Okay. After regaling the spellbound crowd for a while, the man limped out of the cafe and about a block down to another cafe on Front Street, this one owned by Margie Fields and her husband, Lacey. Yeah, it was a, his name was Lacey. It's very different. I've heard that before, though. You have a dude yeah. named? Okay, yeah. I've heard like a dude named Stacy. Mm-hmm. Again, he took a seat and proceeded to tell stories and answer questions from the crowd that quickly grew there. He talked about being sent into Iwo Jima as a Marine scout and how he was captured there by the Japanese. After being held prisoner, he escaped to a nearby island where he engaged in guerrilla warfare with his captors until he was finally rescued by American forces. Two of the men in attendance were George Crownover and Newport Police Chief John Moore. And by the end of the man's story, they were absolutely convinced that the Marine brass had made a mistake in declaring William Langston dead and that he had returned home. Wow. Obvious question for me early on is if he just came into town and he hasn't been there for a long time, did he not have family there? Would he not go to his family first? Or maybe maybe a town that you lived in, maybe you didn't have family in any longer for whatever reason. Maybe you would go to the cafes and stuff first. There's a story behind it. He went somewhere else first. Oh, okay. I'm skipping way ahead. And immediate, no, it's a good question. He did go somewhere else first and immediately left. And we will get to that. A, f- a few of these people, there wasn't family directly in Newport, but they were close by. Oh, okay, okay. And, well, yeah, they, they kind of bring that up, and he seemed sort of uninterested. Okay. It's an anomaly to it, but, yeah, that was a very good question. Thank you. <laughs> Here's a gold star. That might uh, be the only good question I have all night. <laughs> Bill Powell who years before had been the Langston family's landlord, was convinced the man was indeed Willard Langston. Also, Lacey Fields, like I said, he was not quite so sure at first, so he decided to test this mystery man. He asked him, If you're Langston, when was the last time I came over to your house? The stranger answered straight away, 
You came out to visit back when I was living with my mother. It was about 15 years ago. Uh, you had Dove Duncan and Faye Jordan along with you. Oh, and also Dutch Vaughn. Well, Bill Powell just shit his britches because that was 100% correct. After wow. this, the man brought up an incident that happened in a pool hall the Fields used to own years before. That was correct, too. He couldn't have looked all this up on the socials. No. Not back then. This is no. the mid-40s, baby. Lacey Fields went white. Every word of the stranger's response was 100% accurate. That is when Lacey Fields was sold as well. Willard Langston had not died in Iwo Jima. By God, he was sitting right here in the Fields Cafe in Newport, Arkansas. Hmm. Wow. The only other place my mind would go would be like that this was some guy in his platoon and he told all these stories too, but why would you tell all these stories to somebody? And that how detailed. Would, and then how would that guy know who each person was? So, yeah. you know, there's no way that would be accurate. No. Because, I, yeah, I thought about that too. It could be a combination of that plus if somebody said, yeah, I remember 15 years ago, you and you and you came to my house. I mean, that's kind of a long time ago. I mean, he might just be dazzled by the response and be like, it's not with, within the realm of impossibility that we all came out to your house, you right. know? Yeah. So then he's just kind of like saying, oh, that's impressive that he would name drop. Right. I don't know. So you're saying, yeah, you're saying just because he knew so many of the names. Yeah. But God, it still be could be what Sam said. But I mean, Roll Faye was with you. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I've done stuff with Faye before. You know? I've done a lot of stuff with Faye. <laughs> hey, let me tell you. I, I knew I know, you were going to go there whenever I said that. But you know what I mean? Like, what Sam said, he this guy that he's getting all this info and stuff would just have to talk more than Bubba from Forrest no, Gump. Kidding. You know, it's just like, right. tell me your entire life and everyone you knew. Exactly. Not just about shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's very unlikely, too. And then again, naming off the people as they came in. Right. Yeah, that's, exactly. yeah. yeah. How in God's name? You wouldn't have a picture of everyone you with them. You, know? you wouldn't. So this is a kind of leaping to the end, but a lot of people believe if it wasn't actually Bill Langston or Willard, you know, the, the real guy, because we don't know. There's no answer here. Okay. I'll tell you that. Okay. One camp believes that it was an, uh, someone that was local to the area that would know all of them. But I'm like, well, then they would know him, wouldn't they? We would just uh, walk and be, yeah. oh, it's Jim. Yeah, because how old was he supposed to be at this point? 30-ish. Something like that. I don't know. Maybe mid-20s, something like that. Young. Yeah. But still old enough that they would have recognized him from before. Right. Because, and I know, and here's a good example. When we played, we played a show not too long ago, and uh, there was a guy down there. I had not seen him since like four or five years before I left my previous job. So, because me and him talked about it. 19 or 20 years. His name's JD. I instantly recognized him. You know, I, I, I did like he, he was, uh, he came up and he was having something to do with this festival thing we were playing at. And immediately I was like, JD, holy shit. And he was like, Joey, he, he recognized me too. But we had not seen each other since like 2003 or something. Yeah. So, you know, just because the town's folk hadn't seen the guy in 10 years means nothing to me. Sure. Because there were some people that were like, well, they didn't see him in forever. Maybe they forgot what he looked like. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you'd forget completely how so. Yeah, you're right. You're, you know, yeah. Like, imagine just then you would never know anyone you graduated with after you left for 10 years. It's like, oh, I don't know who you are. Yeah, on site. Exactly. You got to give me some proof. <laughs> it's like, you. Yeah, it's been 15 years ago. What do you expect me to? I don't have a photographic memory. You look exactly the same, except you have a little bit of a gut and gray hair and a bald spot. 
But you look about the same. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Continue. This is good so far. Well, the guy spent the rest of the mystery man, spent the rest of the day milling about the town. He visited the barbershop and a few stores before returning home with George Crownover for dinner. During that dinner, the man shocked everyone by announcing that he had first traveled to St. Joseph, Michigan to see his wife, Linda. Okay. Bill Langston was married when he left to go fight, and he had a son. But this man said, when I got back up there to see Linda, I discovered she had already remarried. Oh, man. Like a castaway. We brought that up a few episodes ago. Mm -hmm. Old castaway scene. Yep. wonder if it was raining. (laughs) And then he drove away in a Jeep Cherokee. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I don't know. That's crazy. That Man, that's sad. You got to think about that. Sad. Oh, I can't even imagine, dude. Oh, I mean, if that's really true, I just, I I, yeah, I tried to imagine because this was about, it was less than a year, okay? Not to say anything bad about Linda, but it was less than a year. And, uh, you know, everybody has their own time, I guess, after. uh, That's true. I don't know. Some people never marry again. Some people marry pretty quickly. Some people just. Well, you don't know if she went to the diner and she was like with her friends and she was like, I'm not talking to anyone. And then. She just hit it off with the right person, and all of a sudden, all that loss that she had in her was instantly filled with joy again that she hadn't had in years or a year. Yeah. And hit it off. You know, come on. A year, two years, six months. I mean, I'm not going to try to throw her under the bus, so so to speak, you know? And some people are built for marriage. Like they like being married. Mm-hmm. They oh, yeah. like waking up next to someone every day and coming home to someone and, you know, having conversations over spaghetti every night. And yeah, they like that. I'm like that. I like my wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, that sounds ridiculous to say it like that, but I mean, yeah, I, I love what we have. Yeah. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And so when I was doing this research, I thought about that. I was like, my God, what if I, what if I disappeared or something? And they're and after however many months they're like, yeah, he's probably dead. You know, we're gonna we're gonna do a death certificate and declare him dead. And then what if I came back, and it was like the Tom Hanks the yeah. castaway moment. Yeah, like I I see my house. God, there's my house. There's my dog in the front yard. There's a little light in the window. I see her silhouette. I think I think she's in there. And run up and bust open the door. I'm home, baby. And then some guys like, who the hell are you? Get get off my carpet. I'd be like, you know what? I'm taking this damn dog. <laughs> you can have her. Stormy's coming with me. You got my wife. I'm taking my dog. And then your dog runs to the guy and like, yeah. You're like, oh, you bitch. I can forgive her, but not you. <laughs> You're a man's best friend. I'd be like Caesar. It too, Stormy. No. You go to the cat. What about you? And it's like, meow. <laughs> like walks away too. Yeah. It's like, oh no. Yeah. My kids are like, our new dad's way cooler than you he plays catch with us like i don't like sports i just i loved you though god damn it but no that'd be awful just oh yeah man dude some just some other dude with his arm around your wife and he's like well, i don't know yeah so this yeah. is this is supposedly what this guy experienced yeah traumatic crazy what's crazy is something else this guy knew that he shouldn't have known no one else in Newport or that community knew that Linda had remarried. Okay. Even her parents. She did it kind of under the radar, maybe because it was so soon. Oh, yeah. She kind of felt a little guilty or yes. a lot guilty. Yeah. Okay. So her and her husband had been like in a secret ceremony. 
And so it was bizarre that he knew this. Hmm. My guess is it wasn't a good look, right? If, you're, if your husband dies as a war hero, killed in action, and then you remarry in like 10 months, maybe that's not a good look. So maybe that's why she was secretive about it. Sure. This is, even what's weird, the stranger then produced a photograph of Linda and said the man she married was a fellow Marine named Joe Osinak, I think, which also turned out to be accurate. Hmm. So he knew the guy's name. And just think, this is in the mid-40s. I think 44 or 45. We're going to get 44. He had a paper, like a photo, an actual paper photo with a glossy front of the wife. And this is in the mid-40s. So, like, if you had a picture of someone, there wasn't just, like, you couldn't go on the internet and print it off. Where did he get that picture? Yeah, where, where, where would he have? We all know everyone's family has some old boxes in the attic. Sure. With pictures of your great-grandparents and stuff that goes way back. And you know what the pictures look like. And you flip them over and they have a little print on the back, you know, that mm-hmm. tells wherever they were developed. It was kind of a, it was not just a throwaway thing to take photos and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for him to have uh, an actual photograph of the wife was bizarre. Yeah. If it wasn't him. I mean, maybe it was. Yeah, he said he was devastated by the discovery, obviously. And so he's like, you know what? I'm going back home to Arkansas because he just thought she's got this guy now. She's already over me. He said, and this is what he actually said to the people, what good am I to them now anyway? I'm crippled and useless. Mm. Wow. He explained that his gnarled hands were the result of torture he'd endured in a Japanese prison camp, specifically from being hung from his fingers for days at a time. He also said his limp and crutches were because his left foot had been severed a few inches above the ankle before rolling up his pant leg on the opposite side to show a scar that he said was from a piece of shrapnel. Okay. After eating, Crownover offered him a room for the night, and the man agreed, took the room. So it was another thing. He didn't just fly into town and then out in a couple hours, which you would think if he was a fraud, he would be afraid that, oh, they're going to make a phone call because his parents lived like 20, 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, my parents, someone that really knows me is going to sh- show up and they're going to, but no, he stayed that night and most of the next day. Okay. So meanwhile, word of the dead Marines supposed return to Newport spread like wildfire. It's incredible how fast news could spread even in the 1940s. Telephone, telegraph, word of mouth. By the next day, the news had made its way to the press. And within a week, the entire country was buzzing about the Phantom Marine. As for the mystery man himself, he left town the next day, January 20th, with only vague clues as to where he was headed. So he told one person he was thinking about going to visit his mother, Naomi, in Jonesboro, about an hour to the northeast. Mm -hmm. So she lived an hour away. So she could have drove in very quickly. I don't know why she didn't. I don't know if she didn't find out in time or what. He told another that he was heading to see his father in Newark, just 15 miles northwest of Newport. So dad could have been there in 20 minutes. He never showed up in either location, though. Soon after he'd left, friends and family arrived in search of him. So they just barely missed him, from what I read. They spoke to everyone in town and to anyone who'd uh, had direct contact with him. But as far as where he had gone, no one really knew. Now I'm starting to see the mystery. Because if he would have went to his parents' house, this wouldn't be an episode right now. Because he didn't makes it seem kind of weird. Well, a lot weird. He just vanished and no one is sure. Okay. I'll say this. His family, to their dying day, was convinced that it was him. 
but they think that he was like depressed and like ashamed, I guess. Uh, he'd lost his wife yeah. to some other dude and then he was crippled and I think he was just dejected. He'd just been back from Iwo Jima, so maybe he was suffering from some sort of PTSD. Do they think he went and committed suicide or something? They don't know. Yeah. They think it was him, but they they, they don't know if he did that or if he just... Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to say that they thought it wasn't him because they didn't see him, but I could totally see what you're saying. Yeah. Like I could see... They believe it was him. Wow. And yeah, we'll get we'll get into details of that. I mean, so far there's not a lot of evidence that it's not him. No. It's all evidence that it is. Pretty damn convincing. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So far. <laughs> uh he had told a few people that he had planned on returning to Newport the coming Wednesday, January 23rd. So he told uh, several of the folks there, I will be back. By the time Wednesday arrived, so too had Langston's mom, that was Naomi, his father and his sister Florence all anxious to find out just what was going on. They held a vigil at the Missouri Pacific Railway Station in Newport. Also, there was the missing Marine's uncle, George Langston, as well as George Crownover, the man whose uh, home the stranger had stayed in. His father told the newspapers, quote, we're going to wait here till whoever it is shows up. We're going to clear this thing up. Mm. But nobody ever showed. Wow. The following day, Thursday the 24th, Langston's mother, Naomi, received a letter at her home in Jonesboro. It read, quote, I'm going to a hospital in Oklahoma somewhere. We will be home as soon as I can get my discharge. Don't worry, I'm okay and feeling fine. The letter had been sent the day before and was postmarked from Conway, Arkansas. Naomi stated the handwriting did resemble her son's, but she couldn't be 100% sure However, both she and Willard's father did state that they believed the man was their son and he was alive. So let's take a moment here and talk a little bit about the early life of William Willard Langston and his journey to an enlistment in the armed forces. Okay. Because he enlisted a little bit late. Langston was born in Sulphur Rock, Arkansas on May 26, 1917. His parents were William Clay Langston and Naomi Davis Hendricks and had two daughters also named Elsie and Florence, followed by Willard, who we're talking about, and then lastly, a boy named Marion, who was born 10 years after Willard. The family lived mainly in the tiny towns of Sulphur Rock and Newark, uh, but Newport was the largest town in the area, and that's where everyone went to work, shop, get a haircut, see the dentist, etc. We know that. Same around here. Sure. In late 1933, when Willard was 16, his parents divorced, which was Pretty rare back in that time, especially in rural Arkansas. Just two years later, basically the minute he turned 18, Willard left the natural state and headed over 600 miles north to the town of, I think it's Berrien Center, Michigan. If I mispronounce that, anybody up there, I apologize. Which sits near the southeast shore of Lake Michigan. Okay. Uh, He went up there because his sister Elsie had previously moved there, so he pretty much followed her, hoping he could find work as a farmhand, which he did. Okay. Uh, Willard not only found work in Michigan, he also found love. <laughs> he'd, ba- <laughs> he'd barely arrived in Berrien Center when he met a beautiful young lady named Linda Schmeckel. Schmeichel. Schmeckel. Looks like S-C-H-M-E-I-C-A-J. Schmeckel. Schmeichel? Either one works for right. me. The couple got married on February 29th, 1936, and moved 20 miles northwest to a modest home on 1020 Market Street in the city of St. Joseph on Lake Michigan shoreline. Okay. There, Willard found work at Benton Harbor Malleable Industries, where he worked as a machinist. 
Not quite six months later, the couple gave birth to their first and only child, a little boy named Dwayne Willard Langston, on August 15th, 1936. He's living the American dream. Driving a Rambler back and forth to work. Got a baby, baby boy carrying on the family name. Want to drop some seed, give me some grandbabies. White picket fence, a dog named Spot. No, nothing. No, I mean, I mean, I'm with you. What more could you want? I'm mentally painting that picture very good. <laughs> it was the textbook story of the American dream, but unfortunately, it wouldn't last. As we all know, World War II began in late 1939, and although America had been helping supply the Allied forces for some time before, we had not yet entered the war. Then, obviously, a year and a half later, on June 23, 1943, Langston traveled to Detroit where he voluntarily enlisted as a private for general service in the United States Marine Corps Reserve. He was issued service number 877313 and sent directly to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, California for training. On November 12, 1944, Langston boarded the USS Rochambeau and sailed 6,000 miles west from San Diego en route to Guam. He arrived in Guam on December 28th and remained there for roughly six weeks. Then he boarded the USS Alhina on February 15th and traveled another 800 miles north to the Japanese island of Iwo Jima. Oh, man. Yeah. It was in the shit. Can you imagine, like, you're a Marine sailing and you're, where are we going? You're going to Iwo Jima. That is a great John Wayne movie also. Sands of Iwo Jima. I've watched that so many times with my dad and yeah. just even myself. Yeah. It's it's good. I, I really watched good it when I was a kid. I haven't seen it recently, but yeah. Good stuff. Well, he arrived at Iwo Jima on March 3rd. After a day on the island, Langston was transferred into Company F, 2nd Battalion, 9th Marine Regiment, 3rd Marine Division. Langston saw action just a couple days later and was almost immediately mortally wounded on March 7th, 1945. He died later that same day. The battalion surgeon who processed Langston's body, Cloyd Arford, which let's talk about that name for a minute. Cloyd Arford. Cloyd Arford. Yeah. That sounds like like if you're sneaking into some place and you get caught and you have to make up a fake name really quick. What's your name? Uh, Cloyd <laughs> Arford. Anybody would be like, that's not a real name. What's your real name? You're full of shit, Cloyd Arford. Get out of here. I don't know why I turned into Peter Griffin, but... Um, <laughs> Cloyd Arford? That's just the most bizarre name I've ever heard. You think if you'd have a unique last name like that, you know, it'd just be John Arford. Yeah, but no. You know? Let's just go ahead and complete the uniqueness. Mr. and Mrs. Arford. When the doctor was like, what do you want to name your new baby? They're like, Cloyd! And he's like, too late, I already wrote it down. <laughs> well, anyway, Cloyd Arford processed Langston's body and he filled out Langston's death certificate, which I have right here. His cause of death was listed as GSW, which stood for... Gunshot wound. You got it, brother. Nice. It was recorded that fingerprints were impossible to obtain from the corpse due to battlefield conditions. Wow. Yeah. That'll come into play later, by the way. Okay. The lack of fingerprints. From what I could find, this was relatively rare, but in case of such a circumstance, there were usually several places on the form where one could record the body's identifying marks. So there's no fingerprints. So in the lack of that, there's all these boxes. Every, like, 
scars, moles, birthmarks, dental characteristics, skin, hair, color, eye color, tattoos, anything that would identify that body, you would write them down. In the case of William Langston, not only were there no fingerprints, every one of those boxes were blank. The whole damn form basically was blank. I got nothing. I got... <laughs> Unless he was just like a perfectly Barbie, Ken Smooth doll body with not one single molar scar or anything. Well, no, but eye color. Yeah, not even that. Nothing. It doesn't make sense. Somebody just slacking on their jaw. Yeah, I guess. Would it come back to bite him in the ass, old Clarford? You're a slacker. Oh, no, Cloyd Arford. I just put his two names down. <laughs> <laughs> Clarford. <laughs> oh. A positive identification had been made via his dog tags as well as a bracelet he had. It's identification bracelet. So he had his name on it. Hmm. That's how they ID'd the body. That bracelet, as well as a pencil and a ring, were removed from his body and cataloged. There were several items that, if found on a body, the military would use to identify that body, such as dog tags, a military pay book or pay card, an ID bracelet, or an official identification card. But yeah, if fingerprints were not obtainable, like they apparently weren't in his case, dental records, obviously, were considered the next best thing to know fingerprints. And we'll get into the dental records later. I actually have those too. Wow. Okay. Wow. I, I have everything. Wow. It's amazing. All right. At the time of her husband's death, Linda hadn't heard from him in months and had been inquiring about his location. So even before he died, right, she hadn't heard from him in months, even before he died. Uh, okay. We're going to cover that. So that makes that window longer. It does. On March 1st, 1945, six days before William's death, Willard's death, whoever we call him, Linda had written a letter to the Marine Corps Director of Personnel, followed by a second letter on the third. I have a copy of both letters, as well as the response letters, as well as a copy of the telegraph informing Linda of her husband's death and the official notice letter from the Commandant of the Marine Corps. So we're going to look at those really quick. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, that's cool. So this is the letter that Linda wrote on March 1st, 1945. It was received on the 10th, 1945. It's a photocopy of the actual letter. Yeah, it looks amazing. She's written it in kind of slanted cursive. So I'm going to try to read it. Sir, the Red Cross recommended I write to you in regards to my husband. I haven't heard from him since November 15th when he went overseas. I would like his present address and to know where he is and if he's well. If possible, he is a Marine, and this is his last address. And then she gave where he was last. So that was the first letter that Linda had written. Now, here's the second letter Linda wrote to the Commandant two days later. So this was March 3rd. Dear sir, I'm writing to you to find out why I haven't heard from my husband. I haven't heard from him since he went overseas four months ago. We haven't had any trouble, so I know he would write if he could. I've been to the Red Cross, but they couldn't help. Just knowing he's well and where he is would help a lot. His last address is, and then she gives the same address, and then it says yours, uh, truly yours, Mrs. W. Langston. So that was the second letter that his wife had written, trying to find out. She doesn't know anything about his well-being or where he's at. Now, this is the response letter from P.H. Olinger. He was from the Marines. I don't think he's the commandant, but anyway, he replied, this is March 15th. So Langston's dead, but this is a few weeks later. 
Dear Mrs. Langston, your letters from March 1st and 3rd, the two that I just read to you, requesting information concerning your husband, Private First Class William F. Langston, or W. Langston, sorry, have been received in this office for attention. Irregularities and mail deliveries to and from overseas organizations no doubt account for your failure to hear from your husband recently. You may communicate with him by addressing mail as follows, and then it gives an address. And it says, your name and address are part of your husband's military record, and you may be assured that you will be verified or notified in the event this office receives any news of importance regarding his welfare. So they basically said there's no news to report. Probably just haven't heard from him in so long because of there's a war going on. It's overseas. Even though their correspondence seemed to be going back and forth with no problem. Well, they're away from the front lines. Yeah, true. Yeah, they're like, yeah. So what I have next is a telegram. Now, this is a month after that. This is April 27th, 1945. And this is from A.A. A. Vandegrift. Could you just imagine having to sit around and wait for that long Ugh. for replies? Yeah, I don't even know. How they... Everything is like a one or two week window between your response. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, just that from her two letters was uh, the third to the 15th. Yes. Mm-hmm. So almost two weeks. Yeah. So, yes. That's, yeah, that would be... Horrible. So she hears from the Marines saying, we'll let you know, on March 15th, 1945. Well, this is April 27th. Golly, so, so over a month. <laughs> six weeks later almost. The next thing she gets after that is, this is from the Commandant of the Marine Corps, A.A. A. Vandegrift, to Mrs. William W. Langston, in parentheses, wife. We deeply regret to inform you that your husband, Private William W. Langston, died 7th of March, 1945, at Iwo Jima Volcano Islands. He died of wounds received in action in the performance of his duty and service of his country. When information is received regarding burial, you will be notified to prevent every uh, possible aid to our enemies. Do not divulge the name of his ship or station. Please accept my heartfelt sympathy. Letter will follow. Wow. So, uh, And by the way, most of this is just stock with just mm. his yeah. name like most of what I read about them being killed in action and stuff is just like already there. And then they just typed in his right. name. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. That kind of puts all of that, not just her, but any wife or spouse that that's was sitting getting. at home. Yeah, exactly. Anytime hmm. that we'd have someone die overseas. And think they sent out tens of right. thousands yeah. of these. So you, they probably opened the mail and like took a deep breath, like, before every letter opening, you know? Anytime it's addressed from, yeah, the yeah. U.S. military. Yeah. Imagine her getting this telegram because it starts, you know, coming oh, yeah. down to the Marine Corps. And then I can just almost see it through her eyes. You, the first thing I see, because it's in darker print, to inform you. deeply regret to inform yeah. you. And, you know, oh, imagine man. her heart just falling. That's crazy. You, while you're reading that, I was just thinking of like every... Every Letter wife. That, yeah, that went out like mm-hmm. that. I was just thinking about her, like, standing next to the mailbox, like, just, like, tearing it open right there in the yard or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's from the, it's from the military. Yeah. She's so excited. Oh, maybe the, it's, it's, maybe it's a letter from him. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's terrible. Man. So, that was April 27th. This is three days later. Now, this is the actual letter. This is not just, like, the copied stock, you know, we did. That was just a telegram. This is the letter, you know, at the end of that telegram, Vandegrift said a letter will follow. So three days later, this is an actual typed letter. My dear Mrs. Langston, 
It is a source of profound regret to me and to his comrades in the Marine Corps that your husband, Private William Willard Langston, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, lost his life in action against the enemies of his country, and I wish to express my deepest sympathy to you and members of your family in your great loss. There is little I can say to lessen your grief, but it is my earnest hope that the knowledge of your husband's splendid record in the service and the thought that he nobly gave his life and the performance of his duty may in some measure comfort you in this sad hour. Sincerely yours, A.A. Vandergrift. Still can't imagine receiving that. Feel so bad for her. I know, man. And it's uh you like at least he sent the follow-up letter, you know, like at sure. least they did that without that telegram it was like a was... personalized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was well, I very well written for what it's worth. Yeah. Well, so if this were like any of the other four hundred thousand American casualties of World War II, that would have been the end of William Willard Langston, at least officially. But of course, that's not what happened, or else we wouldn't be talking about him. Willard's parents and wife, Linda, and son, Dwayne, remember, and the remainder of his family and community were only just beginning to heal when the strange events on the weekend of January 19th, 1945, occurred. Because this was only, it was less than a year later. After that, any of the small amount of healing that was done was ripped right back open. Yes, Linda had gotten remarried less than a year after Willard's supposed death, but the mid-1940s were a very different time in America especially rural America. Many women still had the mindset of being a homemaker and looked at marriage as a means of survival. That's true. And mm-hmm. she had no doubt, you know, was looking for a father figure for right, little Dwayne. Right, exactly. Yeah, and how old was he? Eight, I think. Yeah. Six, six or eight, something like that. Actually, it makes a lot of sense. And when you find someone that's Mr. Right, right. I mean, you got to, she had to be like, well, you know, if I don't do this, the next one may not be yeah. so awesome. The boy needs a father. That's right. And what was his name? Joe. His name was Joe. Joe Osnack. He's a good guy. He's a Marine, just like... Well, and do we know any... Like, what was she doing at the time? I don't know. Was she just a housewife? I believe so. She needed some form of... And like you said, like, it was probably harder for a woman to get a job back then. Mm -hmm. And if she's got a house or whatever to take care of, then yeah, she's... I'm sure it's a lot easier to just find a man than it would be to find a job. Yep. Yeah. And that was pretty common back then. But when she heard about the mystery man claiming to be her late husband in Newport, she made a trip to Arkansas to look for him, accompanied by her son and her new husband. Okay. Awkward. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She spoke to the same witnesses that the Langstons had and milled about town for a couple of days, thinking Willard might return. Like everyone else, she was puzzled over the stranger's knowledge of the townsfolk, and most of all, of her low-key wedding to her new husband. How the hell did he know that? And how did he get my picture? Yeah, and back to what you were saying, like the car ride, you know? So what if we do find him? Yeah. What's your plan? We're going to... Yeah. We're going to polygamy? Or uh, (laughs) what are we doing? (laughs) I don't know if I want to do that. It's a little weird. Yeah, the guy had to be... I, I guess, you know, if he was a good guy, he was like, plus, even if, you know, whatever, whoever he is, I mean, you'd you'd want to know. Yeah, I would, yeah. Yeah, anyone would want to know. Yeah. And there's actually, there's an interesting, uh, the way, the mindset that she and her new husband had, we'll uh, get into that in a second, about the whole situation. She kind of told uh, some newspapers what she was thinking. Okay, okay. Well, you know, she was also perplexed 
as to how, if the stranger was not her late husband, like he, how do you get a photograph of her? Like I said earlier, mm-hmm. that was a weird deal. Uh, this was the the mid 1940s, and I think this is just rehashing everything I just said. You couldn't just Facebook stalk someone and get the image of them or whatever. It was hard to, it was hard to get an actual photo of somebody. Uh, so the fact is that this stranger had an actual photograph of Linda used to be Langston, now Osnack, and that was super odd. Upon her arrival in Newport, Linda had announced that if her late husband was indeed still alive, she would return to him. Whoa. Yes. For his part, Joe, her new husband, also said, if this man is indeed Willard, I will step aside. Wow. Respect. I mean, it's the ultimate dibs, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wow. But yeah, he just like, I don't know. God, that'd be such a strange situation. I feel like today, that would not be so likely that that would happen. No. You snooze, you lose, man. (laughs) I didn't snooze. I was shot in battle, you asshole. Like, you know what I mean? I know. Pronounced dead. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I literally took the snooze the dirt nap. That's what I meant by it. Either way, she's mine now. Stupid. <laughs> hey, I started the whole attitude. <laughs> I got. But I'm just saying, I, I just like maybe more respect than, plus he's a military guy too. Yeah. So he gets the whole thing. That's true. Yeah. But after two days of searching around Newport, the former Mrs. Langston had a change of heart, at least publicly. She told reporters that whoever had been in Newport on that January weekend had been an imposter. Secretly, though, she still had her doubts. After leaving, she told her young son that if Willard hadn't bothered showing up, they'd move on without him. Yeah, I mean, you would expect that would be one of the first people he'd want to see. Yes. You know? But in his mind, well, or from what okay, he said, he yeah, went to see her. That's true. But she was remarried, so he was like... Yeah, but still got your kid. But, I know, right? But he could have been so, yeah, you know, like distraught or sad that he just probably drove away crying, you know? That's what we were talking about before. And like a sense of pride, we have to think different people have pride in different things. And maybe, you know, the fact that he was crippled both with his hands and his feet, you know, he was, he was mm, crippled pretty true. badly. He didn't want us, maybe he didn't want his son to see him like that's that. That's true. A lot of psychology there for sure. Yes. Yeah. I don't want my son to see his old man hobbling in there, you know, and, and not being able to do like we used to do and wrestle around and play catch, you know, maybe, yeah. I don't know. And then he saw... Old Joe over there, maybe Joe was just big strapping lad that would come up here, boy. I'm gonna teach you how to whittle or whatever. Yeah, what if it was a scene like from a movie? He was gonna go knock on the door and he look he could see in the backyard and they were, you know, playing cowboys and Indians or something. Yeah. Dude, it could have. You know, imagine that. Yeah. I couldn't shoot an arrow with these gangled up hands. And then he just drove off in his old Studebaker. That's what I that's the way I see it going. But Langston's family and friends weren't the only ones searching for the mystery man. So, too, was local law enforcement, as well as the Marines, police departments from four states, and even the FBI. Wow. Yeah. And I've got a couple of correspondence from them fellas right here. This was a a letter written by none other than J. Edgar Hoover. Whoa. Written to the Commandant, yes. So here it goes. This was February 19th, 1946. I always think of uh, Police Academy when I hear Commandant. <laughs> Commandant Lassard. This is from Hightower. Um, no. 
this was a little over a year, a year and a month. Actually, exactly a year and a month later after the, the mystery man showed up. Dear General Vandergrift, I have been advised by representatives of the Marine Corps of the, your interest in the case of William Willard Langston. Langston was report. I don't know how J. Edgar Hoover sounded. That's but. what I was about to say. Is he doing his J. Edgar Hoover voice? <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know either. Langston was reported to have been killed in action in the Battle of Iwo Jima, March 7th, 1945, while serving as a member of the Marine Corps. Sounds like a news reporter. Read all about it. He was formerly from Newark, Arkansas. On the weekend of January 19th and 20th, there appeared in Newport, Arkansas, an individual who reported himself to be William Woodard Langston that had been reported killed. Persons in Newport with whom this individual talked have stated that this individual was acquainted with several things which would indicate that he might, in fact, be William Langston. William Langston's mother received a letter posted from Conway, Arkansas, dated January 23, 1946, signed by William Langston and stating his mother that everything was all right and that he was doing good and going to a hospital and further that he would soon be discharged. A comparison of the handwriting of this letter with the previous known handwriting of William Langston reflected that they were not written by the same individual. This cannot be taken as conclusive, however, since it is not known whether the alleged imposter actually wrote the letter received by William Langston's mother. Investigations by this bureau is continuing. In view of the fact that in the event the individual in question is an imposter, there is a violation of the impersonation statute. I shall be happy to furnish you with additional details in this matter as soon as they are received. Sincerely yours. J. Edgar Hoover. Wow. That went way up. The following then, let's get our timeline right. That was February 19th, 1946. Uh, this is April 18th, so almost exactly two months later, right? And this was a report by Norman Casey. So what Hoover was talking about, he sent one of his agents down, and this was Norman Casey, and he perused the town a little bit, and he wrote up this statement uh, of the case, and then he took off. So here okay. it is. This is how it's synopsis of facts is what it's called. Subject represented himself to be William Willard Langston, formerly of Newark, Arkansas, and Berrien Center, Michigan, killed in the Battle of Iwo Jima, March 7, 1945, while fighting as a member of the USMC. Appearing at Newport, Arkansas, over the weekend of January 19th and 20, 1946. The next sentence here will give you a little flavor of how the FBI was looking at this. Subject described military experiences which Langston never endured, but was able to converse freely and convincingly with individuals acquainted with Langston family. No member of Langston family contacted by subject. Most individuals contacted by subject were poorly educated and were in a beer hall at the time. Mm. Subject obtained lodging and small sums of money from individuals at Newport and apparently believed subject was Langston. Marion Davis Langston, brother of William Willard Langston, had physical descriptions resembling subject, but he was eliminated by Seattle office. FBI laboratory advises handwriting on letter uh, written January 23rd, 1946, to mother of William Langston. Uh, they say that was not identical to that of Marion. So what they're doing here is they're... There was, and there is a camp, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute, that thought it could have been Marion impersonating right. his older brother. Remember, they were 10 years difference. Yeah. Marion's 10 years younger. The FBI is talking about that. That's something that came on, on their radar, but they eliminated him. Okay. Okay. Uh, eliminated on why? Do you know? Uh, yeah, I think we're going to get into it. Okay. okay. Uh, I think I'm going to elaborate a little bit into that FBI report, because I know it brought up a couple things. I'm like, what? We'll clear it up. The part of Casey's report that mentions that the imposter made claims of events not experienced by Langston, that's actually true. 
So it turns out that there were a few things that this person said that could not have been true. The stranger had told several people that he had been a Japanese prisoner of war for 13 months before escaping and being rescued. This does not jive with the service record of Willard Langston, who didn't even arrive on Iwo Jima until a few days before his death in March of 1945. That means that less than 11 months had passed since Langston even arrived in combat conditions, not 13 months. Well, okay. I will say this. Okay. If you're a prisoner of war, maybe they don't give you a calendar. Very good. That's what, that's an argument to this. Okay, okay. Sorry. That, no, don't be sorry. You're, you're nailing it. That's one of the arguments to this. But going back 13 months puts Langston in San Diego about to leave for Guam, if that was okay. correct. But like you said, Felt longer. Yeah. Because I wasn't allowed to do anything. It's being hung by my fingers. Yeah. That felt, would, that's true. That would make him feel like an extra two months. Uh, I think I was in there 12 years. Uh, you were in there 33 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this remains the one glaring inaccuracy the stranger had. However, those who believe the man was indeed Langston explain this away by claiming He'd lost track of time or had suffered a mental break while in captivity that caused him to lose his sense of time. Like you said. It would be, I mean, I could see that too. Those people sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> the body of William Willard Langston had been buried on Iwo Jima at 4 p.m. on the 22nd of March at the 4th Marine Cemetery in grave 1927, row 39, plot 1. For unknown reasons, the internment report lists his date of death as March 15th instead of the 7th. And instead of customarily attaching his dog tags to the grave marker, they were said to have been buried with his body. So a couple weird things there. Okay. No trace of his dog tags were ever produced. By the time of Langston's death, well over 60,000 service members had been buried in 133 Pacific Area cemeteries, but these were not considered a permanent resting place. If the family requested, the bodies would eventually be exhumed and transported back to the U.S. to be buried at home. In the case of Willard Langston, since considerable doubt had been rendered as to whether or not he was even deceased, his family and others back in the States were requesting that additional measures be taken to identify the body that was supposedly his. We actually have copies of these letters, thank you, Mr. Coppinger, uh, between the Langstons and the Marine Corps, as well as the dental charts that were ultimately used to re-identify the remains. And those dental charts are quite interesting. I was just stroking my beard. <laughs> quite interesting. You have to make that voice when you stroke your beard. It's, it's like a law, I think. All right, so this was in January of 1948. Okay, so we're like three years past the event. And this is still going on. So... This is a letter to Vandergrift from William Willard Langston's father. Okay. My dear sir, referring to your letter of December 11th, 1947, regarding final disposition of the remains of Private First Class William Langston, there's considerable doubt in my mind as to the real identity of the remains buried in 4th Division Cemetery Iwo Jima. Grave 1-9, blah, 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 blah. The records of your department reveal that no fingerprints were ever taken of the remains, which were buried in that grave, and that's true, uh, which you claim to be my son. Before making final decision on the return of this body, I would like to know if you have any means of providing positive identification of this corpse, as it would be another very serious error to ship me the remains of another other than my son. And that's right. <laughs> yeah, it would be for sure. 
There has been a widespread search by the FBI for a man purporting to be my son who appeared in this vicinity in 1946 and nothing definite was ever cleared up about the man. I am enclosing a clipping from my home paper regarding this strange case and I would like to hear further from you on the matter. I've also been informed that no dog tag was ever recovered with his body and that was buried, they say. Uh, other means identification may, may vary. So that's basically him saying, you know, I'm not sure about this whole thing. Before, yeah. before we ship this body back, let's make sure it's my son. Yeah, let's double check. So this is a letter to, uh, back to the father, and this is from Edwin C. Clark. Mr. Langston, I have your letter of December 20th. That's when I just read regarding your son, the late private first class William Langston. The records of this office show that your son's identification tag is interred with his body. There appears to be no question concerning the identification of his remains, but since there is a doubt in your mind regarding the identification, the Department of the Army is being requested to re-examine the remains in order to re-establish identification. Upon receipt of uh, further information, you will be noticed. A little bit more, that didn't matter. And now we have a following letter. This is 9th of April, 1948. Okay. This is to Mr. Langson, again from Edwin C. Clark. This is in further reference, he says, to my letter on January 16th regarding your son. The Department of the Army has informed this headquarters that the remains interred in grave 1927, row 39, 4th Marine Division Cemetery, Iwo Jima, have been identified beyond a reasonable doubt as the remains of your son. So this is the follow-up. Now we know it's him for sure. Okay. We double-checked. In the event that you are not satisfied, the body in question is that of your son. It is suggested that you designate option number one, which provides for permanent interment in a national cemetery overseas. So they're basically, if it's if you don't think it's him, just mark it that he stays there. That's, you know, interment overseas means he remains on Iwo Jima. Okay. So what I have here is, it says at the top, Central Identification Point American Graves Registration Service. This is the dental records. Okay. And I have the dental records of what we know was William Willard Langston. And then compared to this body that the military says is Langston, so to speak. (laughs) There are four discrepancies between these comparisons. And I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it does say right here, see a mistake in... Okay, this this is what's funny. They acknowledge even in this dental report that there is mistakes, but this is how they kind of explain those. This says, a mistake in charting the restorations most probably occurred in 1944. A messio-occlusal restoration mark, whatever that means, on the second molar may have been intended for the first molar, which clarifies B and C. B and C means there was discrepancies. So this is the navel form that we know as him, second bicuspid filling. The corpse, filling absent. So the corpse on his, on that tooth, no filling. Okay? Second, first molar, filling absent. The corpse had a filling there. Mm. Hooked on a filling. It was there. I would say that's a discrepancy. Again, second molar, occlusal filling and mark delineating mesial surface. Don't know what that means. On the corpse, that was not there. Also, third molar, not marked absent. So he... On his, his third molar was there. On the corpse, the third molar was absent, not present. So there's four discrepancies. Post-death molar growth? (laughs) I've heard of that before. It's very rare. (laughs) That sounds like not a match. Yeah, four pretty damn glaring discrepancies in my book. Unless they had bad data to begin with. You know, like... True. 
a switched whatever. This says, continuing at the bottom of this report, all his third molars are marked missing except the one in question, which was most probably also negligence in charting. So again, they're saying it's probably just a mess up. The only reason for the difference in chart L13 was that the charter may have been confused about the dentist, what the dentist had marked on the left second bicuspid, similarly to the left first bicuspid. So anyway, this is all just explaining. There was confusion. They marked it wrong. This is probably just, this is how they identified the body. You know, that Mm. second time, because the first time it was with his identification bracelet and supposedly the dog tags that no one ever saw. But when Mr. Langston wanted more proof, they send this, you know, here's this dental records. And this, <laughs> I'm sure the family was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what was sent back. The possibility of two people having a combination of restorations similar to the extent we find between the chart and the remains is extremely remote. So again, now I have a central identification point, American Grace case summary. Now this is the summary. I'm going to read the second one because this is a long report. We don't want to be here all night. This was by Aldrich Connerly. Okay. He writes, there are a few variations between the dental record received from OQMG and conditions found with the remains at the central identification point. It is believed that these variations are personnel errors and recording information dictated by the dental officer at the time of the dental record was made. Uh, So uh, under that, it says it is believed that beyond a reasonable doubt, the remains formerly interred at 197 et cetera, et cetera, are absolutely positively those of William W. Langston. After all those? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yes. And this was 16th of March, 1948, the the, the actual report. I'm not saying it wasn't him, but it just seems strange that there are so many mistakes and then a guy comes back with absolutely positive. This is absolutely him. Wouldn't at its core, isn't it, you look at every single tooth and mark what? that tooth looks like and if it has a filling or not or if it has whatever. Mm -hmm. But there were several that... At least four that I found. Even like a tooth that wasn't there but was there. Yeah. Absolutely positively. It's... I think I added one of those words but yeah, they were like, this is sure as hell him after that. Okay. So, back in the States, a wide-ranging search for the mystery man took place but turned up no results. There were other encounters with the man, though. There was also a report of someone picking up a hitchhiker matching the mystery man's unique description. Because remember, gangled up hands, limping crutches. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that these reports were probably that guy. Yeah. I don't know how many guys out there looked like that in the mid-40s or any time, so... Uh, yeah, so there was a report of someone picking up a, a mystery man. There was hitchhiking. And this person said they dropped him off at the gates of Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. Okay. Now, this was just seven miles from the Oklahoma border and two hours from Okmulgee. Oklahoma had two VA hospitals at that time, one in Norman and the other in Okmulgee. This would be in line with where the stranger claimed he was headed. But no one fitting his description ever arrived in either VA hospital. Oddly, a wallet card bearing the name of William Withered Langston was found in a pool hall in Ripley, Tennessee, but no one remembered seeing him there. But directly after that, this article was sent to a Memphis paper called The Press Scimitar. So, right after that card was found... It was found in Ripley, believe it or not. (laughs) I love it! (laughs) It read... 
just to get the record straight about myself, WMW Langston, and not to have some people believe that this was just another sea monster tale like popped up a few years ago in Newport, Arkansas, I will give you the following facts about myself. I was at Newport as reported, but I left there and came to Memphis and was at Central Station when police arrested Johnny Brantley, overseas vet, for having a Japanese souvenir knife, which cost him $26 fine. Also, another $26 for being a suspicious person, 52 in all. Just 52 days in the bean house, he wrote. So I thought if that was the way Memphis police welcomed overseas vets, I'd better move on. So I went to Ripley, Tennessee, to try and see June Queen, but she had left, so I just left my card and hit the road again. Yours for the truth, William W. Langston, Newport, Arkansas. Wow. That letter went to the press cemetery the day after his, well, A card. And I think it was his wallet card was found in that pool hall in Ripley. Wow. And Ripley and Memphis are, I, I believe, like right next to each other. Okay. So that's interesting. Very, very interesting, yeah. So let's just, uh, I have another, this is a little section here where we'll, we'll just read a couple of uh, interesting uh, new, newspaper clippings about this. Okay. That go in line with this. This was January uh, 26th. Arkansas State Police said today that a young man who was identifying himself at Newport last Saturday as Marine Private William Langston officially reported and killed in Iwo Jima, previously had appeared under a different name at Jonesboro and applied for a job as a cafe dishwasher. So the guy that showed up saying he was him, now they were getting people calling in saying, oh, I saw that guy, but it was before he had ever arrived in Newport. Okay. They had sightings of him in other places even before he got to Newport. A waitress told police that a youth described as the one claiming to be Langston had come into the cafe where she had worked last Friday. She said he applied for a dishwashing job and that she had given him food. Police said the youth had given a name other than Langston and said he was from East St. Louis, Illinois, and was a nephew of a farmer near Jonesboro. Now, here's the description. They reported that the waitress had told them that the youth was disfigured and had poor use of his hands, which conforms to the description of the man claiming to be back from the dead, in quotes. She said he told her he had been wounded while serving in the Marines. Police in four states today were on the lookout for the Arkansas Ghost Marine, as indications mounted that his return from the dead was a hoax. No trace has been found of the man calling himself William Langston, since the Marine's mother received a letter from Conway, Arkansas, Thursday, saying he was on his way to a hospital in Oklahoma. And this is another one that brings up a hitchhiker sighting. George A. Etheridge. This was January 23rd, 1946, not too long ago. George A. Etheridge, Conway livestock dealer, who reported yesterday that a man answering the veteran's description, until he wrote it, aided him in moving a calf from the Brown and Lewis auction sales barn to Etheridge Barn Tuesday night. He said the man told him his name was Langston and that he was going to a veteran's hospital in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Mr. Etheridge said that the man had a crippled hand and had lost one leg. Police are considering the possibility that the man representing himself as Langston may be a shell-shocked veteran who was, and this is printed from a very old paper, so forgive me, who was a close friend of the Marine veteran and who might be laboring under a delusion. The mysterious stranger arrived at Newport Saturday wearing civilian clothing over a Marine Corps uniform. He said he had been captured in Iwo Jima, tortured by the Japanese, 
and discharged from the Marines only a few days earlier. Wonder why he thought the close friend thing. Right. There had to be a reason he said that. Didn't one of you earlier say, like... Sam did. Yeah, like maybe it was a buddy there in a foxhole together. and But he was only on Iwo Jima for a few days. Or maybe it was someone he served with or, you know, before. like... Before. Because he was out for months before. Yeah. I don't know, guys. What the do you think? The thing that's plausible is that if it's a hoax, he knew him very well. And he just went in with the utmost confidence and blew him away. Like the thing said, they were simple-minded people. I don't know. Maybe they just forgave inaccuracies because, you know, your brain registers the hits and not the misses. Yeah. Like, that's crazy he knew that. What about the thing he said about whatever? Or like you said, they're simple-minded, also in a bar. And sure. he's like, oh, yeah. yeah, you're Mary. No, I'm Mary. Oh, yeah, that's what I said. You're Mary. Yeah. <laughs> Just redirect. Yeah, exactly. To that, you know, and then they don't, like that. they don't think about it right. later. But he also went to a cafe and a barber shop. Right. Yeah, that's true, too. But a lot, of, there were things that were wrong. You know, uh, the 13-month thing. There was not enough time to a lot for that much. But like you said, was that if you're a prisoner of war, in, you know, in a camp, what are you marking off the days in dirt with a stick? Like, how would you know exactly? Yeah, that? yeah, it would be, t- be very tough. This is one of those ones I'm truly on the fence about, though. My side that doesn't want to believe it is like eyewitness testimony is the weakest thing. And this is just a bunch of eyewitness testimony, you know, and it's kind of popular to be on the side of the majority, right? So they're just like, maybe they, they believe it. I'm not saying they don't believe it. But then my other side is like, he just got too much of that right. And there were just too many people. And there's not enough that pushed back on it. I mean, we don't hear a lot of people that think he was full of it. Right. Including his family, you know? Right. Of course, they'd want to believe. I don't know. See, I'm, See that's, a thing. that's yeah. the thing. Of course, they want to believe. that. Yeah, so I would too. Right? I mean, anyone would. What if this pop? Well, you already said it, but this is two good examples. You know, you guys said, what if he was just really charismatic, uh, an imposter that just blew in there and... There are people that are good at that. It's like those, I can talk to dead people, like Teresa Caputo mm-hmm. and John Edwards. Remember that? Yeah. Like they would do these cold calls on people in the audience and, or, or before that be like, there's someone, someone died and his name started with, with a D. Oh, my granddaddy's name was Dwayne. Holy shit. <laughs> okay. I, I feel that he was old. Was he old? Yes, he was. Holy shit. He was old. You're, uh, you're channeling granddaddy. You know, was this guy just a version of that? I feel that he worked in the steel. Totally. He was a farmer. That's why I said farmer. He was a farmer. (laughs) I don't know. Worked with his hands. He worked with his hands. That, yeah, that. He was an accountant. Yeah. No, he was a tap dancer. You son of a bitch. Oh, I almost had it. (laughs) I was thinking he had to use the Adam machine. Yeah. Not working with his hands. (laughs) Tap dancer. (laughs) Where's his hands? Tap dancer. Well, he had to hold the stick. He's like, the one tap dancer. Damn it. I almost had her. <laughs> but there's a few things that I just read in those articles that we need to unpack, okay? Yeah. So, you know, that letter that was supposedly from Langston that he wrote to the press scimitar where he was like, you know, I, I want you to know it's me and not just some sea monster tale. Yeah, that's weird that he would do that. He explains that. So normally, okay, I'll just read what yeah, I wrote. Go. You would think that that just means tall tale, like another tall tale, right? Some sea monster tale. Mm-hmm. It's actually more specific than that. 
1937, just a few miles from Newport, many people had claimed to see some sort of river monster in the White River. It became a national, nationwide story, uh, even landing in pages of Time magazine. That sounds like something I'd hear about on, like, Dawn of Mantis podcast. <laughs> it sounds like, no, seriously, it sounds like something we'd do. Dude, as I wrote the notes, I was like, we should, like, do it. Oh, uh, we should totally. We should cover We that. should do We're just going to do our Joe Carbo voices now. <laughs> yeah. Dad, you're going to work yourself into an early grave. God, Joe Cap is the best. I, God. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, this was a big deal. And they even sent professional divers out to the White River to search for the sea monster. They never found anything. Spoiler alert. Oh, man, you can't do that. We might do that. <laughs> the monster quickly faded from the national scene, but had remained a legend amongst the locals. So, was this reference further proof that the man could have been Willard Langston? Like, at that point in time, that sea monster thing was not really a thing that someone, only a local would know. True. And so that was another thing where they were like, holy shit, at least the guy was a local. Yeah, I think if it was a hoax, I think he somehow had local ties. True. But that's good. That's good. That, that's more validation. Yeah. That's neat that he kind of spoke in code, though. Yeah. Sea monster tale, like, a few years ago. Like, he was talking directly about that. Yeah. Okay, I've got another few articles here. We're almost done. Describing encounters with this mystery guy, okay? This one is from the Press Scimitar. Again, it's February 1st, 1946. The headline is Ghost Marine's Brother Missing for the Past Month. So we're going to revisit this Marion thing that the FBI brought up. Langston's mother received a letter last week from a person signing himself William Langston. We've talked about it. We read it. The writer said he was on his way to a hospital in Oklahoma to get a discharge. The letter was mailed from Conway. We've covered that. So Miss Griffin, the Langston brother's sister, said she received a letter yesterday from a cafe employee in Conway, Mrs. A.C. Sledge. A.C. Slater is what you thought I was going to say. <laughs> hey, preppy. <laughs> Mrs. Sledge wrote that she had talked with the stranger for some time. Mrs. Sledge said the man spoke constantly of his eight-year-old son and then talked about uh, his mother, now Mrs. Osanak, remember because she married Joe, in St. Joseph. Adding to the mystery was the fact that the stranger brought the first news of Miss Osanak's remarriage to Newport and the family. He said he had been to St. Joseph, found his wife had remarried, and left for Newport. Linda, his wife or ex-wife or whatever you want to call her now, said she did not ever see him in St. Joseph. But again, like we said earlier, maybe he pulled up and just saw them in the yard or in the window or, you know. Well, was he driving? Or did he get off like a bus and walk to there and Ooh. then he like walks up and sees that? He limps like up across the street. He just observes for like I said, a, a bit, and then goes on his way. Yeah. That's an intriguing part of the case that he knew that and we took that. Yeah, so I wonder if it were a hoax, did he, like, go and, like, scope it out, you know? Yeah. I just keep thinking about this. I can't quit thinking about it. He didn't see any of his family whatsoever. Never. Not one. That's pretty huge for me. I, I can't get that out of my mind. That's a big thing. So maybe the story about seeing her and not going up is, like, a way for him to cover that, you know? But how did this dude know that she'd gotten remarried? Yeah, I don't know. Dude, it's so crazy. Well, why'd he write his mom a letter and not see her? Right. You know? I don't know. Where's dad? Yeah. It don't make sense, y'all. It doesn't. So the following is from an article written May 1946. It's called The Phantom Marine. It was written by uh, James Phillips, okay? 
I'm going to read just a few excerpts from it because it's really long. I'll start on page three. After this thorough examination of the background of the case, the senior FBI agent in Little Rock was interviewed. We already talked about his report. He stressed that participation of his agents was unofficial, but as usual, his dossier was complete. Some of the points he brought out were that William Langston had been 26 at the time of his reported death, but that he had a younger brother named Marion who was only 19. I don't think that jives because I think he was 10 years younger. I think he was 16. But anyway, this younger brother had been employed in a Washington state shipyard, but early in January 1945, he had been injured and hospitalized. During this period, young Langston had written his mother and aunt for money. That would be young Langston Marion. They both responded. On January 6th, the brother vanished from a Seattle boarding house. So just like a week or two before this other guy shows up, Oh, actually, one day short of two weeks, Marion had vanished from the Seattle boarding house. It's like what Clark Kent always is missing whenever <laughs> Superman comes out. <laughs> exactly. I, I kind of get what you're See? I smell what you're stepping in. I'm not trying to be the rock, though. <laughs> it was known to the FBI that Marion Langston looked like his older brother and had a lump under one kneecap, which might have made him limp. Also, he had been injured several years before in an industrial accident, and his right index finger was affected. This threw a bright light on Crownover's observations that the, fam, uh, the stranger had a bad index finger. So um, this was them pushing. The, there are still people to this day that think that it may have been Marion. We'll continue. The news created the automatic inference that Marion Langston was abroad in Arkansas, posing as his own brother. Until he could be located, no final verdict on the case of the Phantom Marine was possible. At the time, uh, Leatherneck went into press. That was the magazine that this was out of. Marion had not been found, and the stranger had not appeared again. The letter to Miss Langston had been forwarded to Washington for examination by handwriting experts and to be dusted for fingerprints. No results had been announced. The news syndicates which blasted the story into national prominence are quiet as the search for one or other of the two brothers continues in Arkansas and in the neighboring state of Tennessee. Meanwhile, the town of Newport is split into widely divergent factions. Police Chief Moore is convinced that the stranger was Marion Langston, the younger brother. I guess he had changed his tune. George Crownover, the old friend with whom the crippled man had spent the night, is equally convinced that the man is William Langston. He and several other citizens have raised a considerable amount of money in the belief that the stranger was the missing Marine. That's where the matter currently rests. It would be easy enough to say that the visitor was the younger brother, Marion. That would be a quick solution to the matter. Yet several points remain to confuse the issue. How was the stranger able to recall so many Newport people by name when most of them he recognized had not known the younger brother? How did the stranger know that William Langston's wife had remarried, a fact her family did not even know? And I want to back up for a minute, take a pause from the article. Let's remember, I think they got the ages wrong. I think uh, William Willard Langston was 30 or would have been 30 at this time. Okay. And that would have made his younger brother, Mary, in 19 or 20. Okay. So there's that. So when you think Willard, William Langston, hadn't even lived in Newport for at least 10 years, but most of the things he brought up and when he lived there and was a part of the community was like 12, 13 years earlier, that would have made Marion a, a small child. Mm. You know, Marion would have been just a kid. So here's my point. You have older sisters. Sure. So how familiar were you with like your sister's circles? It's kind of like a different thing, right? 
It's like 10 years ahead. Yeah, one of them's eight years older than me. And I kind of vaguely know some of her friends. Right. But the only the ones that would come around. And then I guess I can think about people she would talk about, but I wouldn't be able to necessarily ID them. Right. Actually, I wouldn't be on some of these people that I'm thinking about right now. So, yeah. And just unless, you know, he took his little brother around with him all the time, which is possible. Possible. I think... If I did the math correctly, Marion would have been anywhere from like five, six, seven-ish Yeah. at this time. So it's almost like we both have kids that age. Yeah. It would almost be like in 10 or 12 years, if one of our one of those kids could just show up that are now 20-ish and just recall everybody that we knew. I don't know. To me, that just I don't yeah. I don't think a kid is retaining all that. It just yeah. seems unlikely. But to me though, I think it's the most plausible out of anything. I mean, if there were someone that did the hoax, he's the most plausible person that I know of. True. That's all we have, really, right? I mean, we don't have another suspect, so to speak. No. The thing about the girl getting remarried and no one knowing, I mean, just by happenstance, someone could have known. He could have known. I mean, maybe in some random, weird way, like she has a cousin that lives back near there and it slips or I don't know. She married another Marine. What yeah, if he had told somebody? That's true, yeah. Or, you know, I was thinking, going back to the, just somehow it just gets back. You know, to me, that doesn't make an open and shut case like no one could have known. Well, I mean, someone could have known. Right, yeah. But I'm just trying to, you know, I'm not ruling out this kid. I mean, it's the most plausible suspect, and but basically it's like the things like, you're my favorite uncle. It's like, I'm your only uncle. <laughs> so he's like my favorite suspect, but he's the only suspect. Yeah. Too. So it's not impossible. Yeah. But I see what you're saying too. I mean, it's very unlikely that he would be able to call those people out by name and, you know, you came to the house back and whatever, you know. Yeah. And they all said the guy looked like maybe 30, but a hard lived 30. And Marion was 19 or yeah. 20. Yeah. So I'm like, how would he, can you see a 29, a 19 yeah. year old looking like a haggard 30 year old? I don't know, man. Yeah, you'd really have to sell it, you know? Okay, I'll finish this article. Okay, uh, go ahead. How could the visitor, if he were the younger brother, have graying hair and look 30 years old if he were only 19 or 20? Well, by God, that's what I just said, article. <laughs> I didn't even see that. <laughs> that's what I said, article. I can cut that. No, that's fine. It's just... Uh, no, don't. It affirmed what he said. Shows don't I was right. that, yeah. <laughs> just like, no. Yeah. How could an imposter have a picture of William Langston's wife in his yeah. pocket? And even if it was Marion who came into Newport that January afternoon. What possible motive would the boy have in subjecting his own mother to such grief for no reason? I I was thinking of that earlier. What's the motive? Right. I still didn't have that. What would it be? These are the naughty points, K-N-O-T-T-Y, not the other, that prevent snap judgment in the baffling. These are naughty points. He was... If the tired man who came limping home on January 19th is, against all probability... Really, Private First Class William Willard Langston. It wants to get him home and correct its record. That's speaking of the military. For William Langston is a man who deserves well of his country. He served it well on the field of battle. If the limping man is Brother Marion or some other figure undisclosed, the solution is much simpler. A man who writes a false letter of resurrection to a grief-stricken mother deserves a touch of intensive combat treatment by a Marine honor guard. Oh, kick his ass, I guess. Yeah. The Leatherneck and the Corps wait to see what the next development in the strange Arkansas case will be. 
That's the equivalent of, I'm calling you out. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if the dude ever read that article. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. Hope they don't catch me. <laughs> so let's close this up. The possibility that the imposter was Marion Langston has been largely dismissed. Marion was estranged from his family for the next, the real Marion, for the next 50 years until he reconnected with them. Members of the Langston family were interviewed a few years ago, and none seemed to believe Marion was ever posing as his brother. In fact, many of them, including his mother, Naomi, went on to their graves, convinced that William Willard Langston had returned from Iwo Jima very much alive, like I said when we started this. Despite this, the family had elected to have the body the Marine Corps claimed was Willard Langston moved from Iwo Jima and permanently laid to rest in the Honolulu National Cemetery in February of 1949. Okay. I'm thinking they were like, even if there's a shred of possibility that that is him, let's move him. Yeah. Even though they probably hoped it wasn't. Sure. To this day, no one is sure who exactly appeared in Newport, Arkansas that cold day in January 1946. It is now nearly 80 years later, and anyone directly involved with the case has long since passed. Unfortunately, that means we will never know for sure. Exhume DNA. Exactly. But why? There's no one to do it. There's no one to push for it. There's no reason other than to make this episode solved, which <laughs> is a pretty good reason. That's a good enough reason for me. I bet it's going to happen then. The thing about this case is it's intriguing either way. If it was a hoax and somebody did it, wow. If he came back and just saw a few people and didn't ever see anyone again, wow. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's a wow yeah. factor. But, like, what's the motive behind any of it? Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I don't get it. Yeah, that's... Very Yeah, confusing. there's no motive. There's no reasonable motive. So, if that was Langston... Why would there not be some record of him being liberated by American forces from this POW camp and saved? How did he get back to the yeah. United States? Well, I didn't even think about it. How did he yeah. get back? And why would there not be any record? Did he like secretly stow away in the you know belly of a ship or like I don't yeah, see well, that? Yeah, why would he have to? So here's here's what I think after doing all this research. I don't think it was him. I can't answer for how he pulled off. All that, unless, yeah. like we said, it was some sort of John Edwards thing where he just kind of pulled stuff out of people, almost That's like true. a coerced confession from a cop. They kind of, they give you the answer and then you kind of throw yeah. it back. In. I think it wasn't him and it was just somebody that was maybe clearly mentally ill or something posing as him. He would have had to. I don't know how they knew him. Had some knowledge though. Yeah, I know. Now, I don't know how he could have gotten that, but. Yeah, you're right. I, it, maybe he was a friend of his over, over there. You know, I just, yeah, I even, yeah, because God, even saying that, like, I don't think it was him. And then I remember, well, he knew all those people by name. And, you know, the answer to that, someone might say is, well, okay, well, he was a local too. Well, then they would know him. Didn't some of them think they recognized him? Several thought they recognized him as Langston on site. Yeah. There were at least a few that were like, oh my God, Bill Langston's back. Maybe he had a partner that went in like, a little bit before and scoped it all out. And yeah, but for what reason? Yeah, though? I don't know. I, I, yeah, I don't know. You know what? I just, I just, I just busted this case wide open. Yeah, it looked like it. Back, Go for a hole. Back, <laughs> back in those days, everybody kept a journal. What if Langston really did die, and some uh, other Marine found his journal, and and, and Langston had written all this stuff in it. Everything. The motive could be as simple as 
a lonely guy wanting a not to be lonely for a night. Yeah. It's the same thing about the guy that pretended to be Bob Seeger. Oh, yeah, at the casino. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> of course yeah. he didn't. They said, are you Bob Seeger? He's like, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, he kind of, it was very weird. So, I mean, it could have just been he had the journal. That's brilliant. Not, well, it just hit me. It's, it would so be the So he had simplest. the journal, and he went back, and he thought he would try to use it a little bit. He knew he was breaking the law, so he couldn't do too much. So maybe there was a motive that never was uncovered. Right. Because he didn't go deep enough into the plan. Maybe he's like, he figured he'd bail on it. Yeah. Yeah, because he left the next day. You know, if you cased a bank and never robbed it, there's no crime, no motive. No one ever knows. Yeah. So maybe he was trying to figure out what he could get away with. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know how he knew about Linda getting remarried. I just, I don't know. There's no thing that answers everything. You know, there's no one. Okay, I'll add to your theory. Okay. Which your theory is good, but I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> he gets the journal, goes back to the States. He's going to go back and pretend that he's the guy and impress the girl. And it's like, oh, no. She's already remarried. That has happened before. So he never, well, that imposter documentary on Netflix a few years ago. Oh, there's several cases. Yeah. Okay. So of course, you, I don't think he could have fooled her, but maybe. I don't know. Maybe. It's happened before. It's it's worked before. It really has. I was in that POW camp and they tortured me and it made me look totally different. Yeah. <laughs> they did plastic surgery on me <laughs> and they made me taller. So then he goes back to the town to see what he can shake from the trees, but. More importantly, he doesn't go to mom's house. He doesn't go to dad's house. Exactly. He goes to the thing that he hasn't been in 10 years. 10 years? It was 10 years, yeah. Ten, since they'd seen him in Newport, yeah. And, and some more than that, yeah. I, don't, I mean, man, that's pretty good, Joe. That's pretty good. I'm going <laughs> to tell you, good job. Ignore my part. That's pretty good stuff, man. Well, thanks to Mr. Coppinger. He gave me all the... He gave me all the ingredients. I just mixed it up into a big, delicious, mysterious cake. Let's see if he wants to come back and recap this one. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, guys, that's all I have on the Phantom Marine. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool. Hey, good. Yeah. Thanks to him and good job, Joe. Amazing. 4174Mantis. 4174Mantis. Call us and let us know what y'all think out there. That's our voicemail line. You can call. We won't answer. It's just going to go straight to voicemail. You can also text that line as well. Send a funny meme to it if you want. We won't be offended. There's also something I've been wanting to mention, and it's the very last thing in the episode, so no one's listening by now. But uh, I put it in the, at the end of the description of every episode. I just want to remind everybody, if you're not like a fan of the, hey, what's going on, and the banter beforehand, which there was none in this one, really. was a little bit. Uh, at the end of every uh, description, you just read on there, and it says, subject matter begins at, and then, y'all, I'm giving you the option to just skip over our opening banter and jump right to the meat and potatoes. Yeah, because I hate, hey, how are you doing? I hate when people say Oh, that. God damn it. This again? But anyway, some people <laughs> I hate, hate greetings. Some people absolutely despise any banter whatsoever, and that's fine. That's I won't cool. buy a greeting card. Never. <laughs> Forget me. That's okay. Now, as far as the banter in the middle, you're just going to have to skip 10 a few times or whatever you got. Actually, I noticed few. Spotify is skip 15. Oh, cool. All it's right. not skip 10. Is it skip 10 on, on the Apple? I don't know. I just listen on Spotify. Okay. So, yeah. Anyways, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. We haven't said that in a while. We haven't said it in a while. If you're listening, you know, though, but, but maybe you want to listen somewhere else. And we also said from the lovely Redbeard Sound Studios. That's right. It is lovely in here. There are pops everywhere, and I'm taking one home with me. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening to us once again, and we will see you all next week.
Let me tell you about some fellas I know Named Ivan, Sam, and Joe They got themselves a little podcast, you know and They talk about everything under the sun That they find interesting, spooky, or fun and They sure ain't trying to impress no one Remedy to too much time on your answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Mantis. They talk about killers, monsters, and cults. French mates from hell, disappeared folks. Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes. They try to make every story extra nice. By adding their own ginger spice. Not one time or two, but thrice. Right, 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 right. The remedy to too much time on you answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell. Cause there sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell. This old world's as weird as hell. But hell, even if nobody listened, you know they'd maintain a fine disposition. Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission. Remedy to too much time on your answers. Take a little listen to the dawn of Too much time on.